Hey, this is Don Portress, and you're listening to Frequency. Hi, and welcome to episode 12 of the Frequency Podcast. It's December, and uh, we're at an even dozen. This is Joe Brookhouse. Dan is taking this episode off. He's got plenty on his plate right now preparing at his church for the season. Not to mention that since it's December December 10th, that also means it's Dan's birthday. We're not certain of his exact age, but I suspect that the first number is no longer a 3. It's a crisp 28 degrees Fahrenheit here in the great northwest. That's a negative two to you folks listening in the land of centigrade. We've got a a nice little dusting of snow on the ground outside, which to us Portlanders means that the whole city is going to shut down. At any rate, I have just a couple of uh, little bits of housekeeping to attend to before we uh, get to our feature interview today. First of all, We had uh, some issues with the website in November that prevented us from posting for a couple of weeks. We're catching up now, but it was uh, an inconvenience for a bit. You had to wait a little longer for some interviews, but we we appreciate your patience and we appreciate you sticking around. Also related to that, there were two giveaways occurring at the time that the site went out. We're just now catching up on those, so we'll be notifying winners here in the very, very near future, and that's just in time for me to wait in line at the post office to mail out those copies of Travis Thrasher's new book. So look for those to be uh, coming to you sometime during the Christmas rush. So, Second, uh, we recently shared an interview on the website which is Frequency.fm, for those of you who have not tuned in there. Uh, The interview is with Colorado-based indie duo The Sunflowers. Becca and Alyssa, uh, sisters, were gracious enough to share about their new EP, Love Walked In, and also their 30-day devotional, Made to Shine. If you haven't checked that interview out, make sure you do so soon. We'll link to it uh, with the post for this episode just to make it easy for you. Now, on to the Frequency interview. If you've kept up on the site, you'll have noticed our review of A Million Little Ways by Emily Freeman. Emily and her book were brought to our attention by past guest Krista Wells. Once we got our hands on the book, it was obvious to us that we wanted to bring her on the podcast, and she was gracious enough to join us. In the event you're not familiar with Emily, here's just a a brief introduction. Emily P. Freeman is a writer whose blog, Chatting with the Sky, Uh, has achieved uh, quite an impressive following in the years since she started it. Uh, And then in 2011, she released her first book, Grace for the Good Girl, a uh, book um, that received much acclaim, but it was also something that really, really resonated with Christian women everywhere. She attended Columbia International University to study the Bible, and then the University of North Carolina at Greensboro, where she earned a degree in educational interpreting for the deaf. She lives in North Carolina with her husband, John, and their three kids. Now, uh, again, I sat down with Emily, and we spoke mostly about the new book. And uh, again, this is something uh, I really enjoyed reading. I really enjoyed chatting with 
with Emily. She's got a great spirit, great soul, great heart for artists. So without further ado, let's listen to the conversation. Good morning. It's Joe Brookhouse from Frequency, and this morning, uh, I'm pretty excited. We're getting a chance to uh, welcome writer Ellie P. Freeman. She blogs at chattingatthesky.com and is the author of Grace for the Good Girl and author of the recently published A Million Little Ways, Uncover the Art You Were Made to Live. Welcome. Hey, it's good to be here. Uh, Is it bright and early where you're at today? It's bright. Um, it's early-ish, but um, I've still got I've still got coffee, so I say I call that morning. Okay. <laughs> so is it? Are you East Coast? I'm East Coast. Okay, so it's ten. It's ten. Yeah, that's wonderful. I wish that's uh, what time it was here. What time uh, is it there? It's uh, just about seven fifteen here. <laughs> oh gracious! Yeah, I've had a full day already, Joe. Really? Yes. I got up at 3.30. I don't know what I'm thinking. I don't know why that's part of the interview. Let's move on. (laughs) All right. Well, first of all, congratulations on the new book. I loved it. And I know people say that all the time during interviews, but I get a lot of books. And as an artist, I read it and just, I don't know, it was jaw-dropping to me. There's some some of what you shared in that book. So, So thank you for this book. Thank you. That's a great compliment. I'm going to write that one down. If you'd like me to, I will type it up and email it to you, and you can, um, I don't know, put it on a sticky note someplace. Please do. Yeah. Heck of a deal. (laughs) The the first thing I want to tell you, my my first real comment is it feels almost as that you, through the book, gave me permission to consider myself an artist. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I've spent a lot of time in my life thinking about myself wanting to be an artist as a songwriter or – or as a sketch artist, but you know, as I've matured, and I put that in quotes, it feels like I, it, it, uh, appropriate to let that go, but it feels like you're giving me permission to, to re-embrace that idea. Mm. I love that. I'm so glad. Um, is, it, is it kind of what your goal is with the book, is to reach out and, and kind of pull that artist back out that's been trapped inside for some folks? It is, because I think that um, so many of us need permission. We don't really, really need it, but we feel like we need it. And I don't know if you are if you feel this way at all, but I, I feel like a big part of that is sometimes feeling like because so much of our life is sharing the, the things that you can't see from the outside, that there's a great fear that once those things come out, that people will discover me as a fraud or as uh, not who I'm really portraying myself to be. And so... My great hope in this book is to um, is really to uncover the, the artist that's in all of us in a way that is not um, something that we have to go out and accomplish something, but uh, but uncovering what already is within us and just sort of bringing that out. Do you think we get we allow ourselves to get defined by the output of our art versus the actual creative process? Well, I do. Don't you? <laughs> oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that's one of the biggest struggles is is defining myself based on the perceived success or failure of what it is that I create rather than um, understanding that not just I make art, but I am art in the eyes of God, that he has made me art, his art, and, and that my job is to express myself fully as myself, whatever comes out. I think you also give us permission regardless of what your medium might be, and even if it's beyond what we consider to be standard artistic mediums such as songwriting or 
or painting or writing, but it, you could be an artist, a doctor or a fisherman or, or any other endeavor, and you are an artist in how you perform that work. Absolutely. To me, as I wrote this book, I really had to think about, okay, let me define art, art an artist. And, and to me, and in, for the purposes of the way I want to talk about this, is an artist is simply someone who's brave enough to move towards what makes them come alive. And art is what happens when we are most fully ourselves. And so that can be true as a musician or as a mother or, as like you say, as a doctor or a teacher or just as a human being, as a, as a friend. Um, so I, I do think that it does go beyond. But I, but I think there's something really beautiful about watching artists as we traditionally think of an artist and then learning from them what that might mean for how I could live my life. So um, l- let me restate that. As we are witnessing other artists doing their work, regardless of what that medium might be, we're perhaps learning from them how we can better live our own lives? Absolutely. You know, Sarah Mason, for me, is an example of that. When I was in high school, I went to um, my youth group. It was a regular youth group night, as far as I was concerned. And I walked in, and up front was a young girl I'd never seen before. I was maybe 17 at the time, and she was a few years older. And she was holding a guitar. And as soon as I walked in, she began to sing. And when she sang, she didn't just sing lyric. She sang story. She shared a bit of herself that I hadn't yet seen a musician do in my life. I'd heard talented musicians before. I'd heard great music before. But there was something about the way she chose to share herself with that room. It was something, um, I can't even put it into words. It was like she had a generosity that went beyond what I normally heard. Um, but when I was there 17, um, I, I realized she was touching something deep within me that was there but maybe was asleep. And, and isn't that what artists do is they reach down, they reach into our, deep into our soul uh, where we are most fully ourselves and, and begin to pull that out and bring that out. It's why when you hear beautiful music or you hear something that, that really moves you, it's, it's why maybe tears might spring to your eyes. It's why you might be inspired to move, um, to have that conversation or to write that whatever thing that you have on your mind. Um, but see, at that time, when I was younger, I thought, well, maybe the reason why her art is so touching to me, maybe that means I want to be a musician. And so I sort of misinterpreted that moment thinking, that, that it was her uh, her medium that inspired me and that, that maybe that meant, oh, well, I wish I could fill in the blank. I wish I could do what she does. But the truth is I can, is that she was an artist in her music, yes, but deeper it was in the way she chose to reveal herself to the room. And in so doing, she showed us a little glimpse of the glory of God. And really that's, what, that's really what we all can do in whatever it is we're doing. But the art is being fully myself and the music is simply the souvenir. Oh, that's cool. That's a yeah. We should write that down and put it someplace. We should. Maybe I should write a book about it. Wait, maybe you have. <laughs> okay. You know, you reminded me of something. You know, as you're talking about Sarah Mason, that your journey into your current let's call it profession uh, or or your medium as an artist, uh, as a writer, you recognized fairly early that you had some aptitude for that. You were quite successful uh, in writing. You were a let's call it a performer uh, driven. Um, to do great things, you were challenged by people, and that led you immediately into piano and sign language, right? Right. (laughs) So talk to me a little bit about that circuitous route to get to where you are now. It really is interesting, and I've and I've I've discovered over talking with a lot of people about my own story that my story is not unique to me. Um, I did grow up. I just. I just grew up, and I can't remember a time when I wasn't writing as a young girl. I got my first diary, I think, when I was in middle school, 
and I wrote all the way until now. I just write privately in journals because I, I love it. I enjoy it. It's the way I see the world. And it came very naturally to me, not necessarily good writing. Don't mistake me for saying <laughs> that writing, that it was any good. But it was just the practice, practicing the craft of writing was something that came natural. Um, but, but I never considered doing that as a job or as a profession or even sharing it in any way. I, I didn't see the value of it that way. But I knew that writing had something to do with me becoming more fully myself. Um, but I did. I majored in piano uh, for a while, and I realized fairly quickly that I wasn't good enough to be amazing, you know, to, like, make anything of it, as you would say. Um, and I wasn't motivated enough to teach it. Um, and I didn't I, – I, piano was – I enjoyed it. Um, and I feel like now I practice it in a way that helps me worship. But, it, but I don't feel like it's part of my offering in the presence of other people. Um, and so I enjoyed it, but it just wasn't really necessarily something I wanted to do for a lifetime. Yeah. And then I ended up transferring from that school because, again, that was a piano where I majored in piano. And I transferred to a school in North Carolina to become a sign language interpreter, um, which I really enjoyed for a, a while. Um, again, never considering writing as something I would do in any way other than for myself privately. Um, but all through my life, I was always encouraged by my English teachers and by family members um, in my writing. People people would encourage me in that. And, and I, I think there was a, a part of me that recognized that I was that I had an inclination for it or that I had a bent towards maybe doing it in a way that came more naturally for me maybe than someone else. Um, but I think there was something in me that was afraid to confront that or to see that as something – it was almost too vulnerable. It's almost too important to me to consider sharing that. I don't know if that resonates at all. Well, yeah, I think the term "too precious" comes to my mind. That uh, this uh, you, we put so much weight behind something, too much value on something, that it becomes terrifying to share it. We become idealists. At least to, that's my experience. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, I can relate with that. Well, Grace for the Good Girl was your the first book you published. Is that correct? That's correct. And, yes. And that was what 2011. Right. That's right. So what happened that put you in a position where you said, heck with it, this is what I'm going to do? That's a great question. Um, I So I was a sign language interpreter for a while and then um, got married. And several years later, my husband and I had twin girls. And there's nothing like uh, twin babies <laughs> that wow. will smoke the crazy right up to the surface. And so <laughs> I quickly realized um, I... I, I didn't I didn't uh, interpret anymore for a while because I was I was home with the girls and once they turned it was maybe they were around 18 months I realized I hadn't been writing I hadn't even been writing in my own private journals and I started to feel like a shadow of myself I didn't feel like I had any weight to me um, I didn't feel like I I was moving into the world as myself I just felt like I was move going through the motions if that makes any sense yeah. Yeah, and absolutely. for me, I, I started to realize writing plays a really important part of making me feel sane. And so that's when I started a blog. And for me as a mom at home, um, starting a blog was more important to me than writing privately in my journal because it had to do with a community. And there was a, a, a loneliness sort of to being a young mom and, yeah. and not having that constant interaction. So that's really, that was in 2006. I started a blog and did that for several years and realized as I practiced the craft and as I communicated and read other bloggers and sort of developed this community online, I recognized um, words I w was writing 
that were resonating with people, and I and I was enjoying things other people were writing that were resonating with me, and I started to wake up in a way. Um, and it, it it ended up being the book didn't come like one day. Oh, I think I'm going to write a book. Um, it really it really grew inside me as a message of things happening in my own life. My husband was a youth pastor at the time, and I was around girls in our youth group who I felt like were going through the motions of their life and, and doing all the quote-unquote right things as Christians, but they didn't really understand the deep, intimate uh, relationship with Jesus that I feel like is available. And so I wanted to write to them. And even then, it wasn't like, I'm going to write a book for them. It was just, I'm, I had to do something about this. But it grew into, um, maybe this could be a book. And so that's sort of the motivation behind that first book. Well, I know it's resonated with a lot of people, and, and we're not necessarily here to talk about that book, but I but uh, I can tell you that uh, my podcasting partner, Dan, his wife, Carrie, she got a hold of that book, and she's like, you're talking to Emily? I'm like, yes. She was very excited. I just wanted to throw that out there. So Carrie will be horrified when she listens to this. But No, she won't. That's awesome. Um, one thing uh, that I got a sense from from the book is that getting out to promote your books and, and conduct interviews like this might be perhaps one of the last things that you would want to do as an artist. And I also got the sense to a certain extent that you're an introvert from yeah. that. And um, I think that's a common struggle for many artists. I think many of us are introverts that um, process and then create, but then when we have the end product and we want to share it, we are stymied. In what you're writing in the book and what you've experienced yourself, how do you get beyond that? It's a really great question and one that I wrestle with, especially in this season I'm in now of the book just came out. So there's a lot of interviews happening and lots of conversation. Um, But one, here's one thing that has really helped me through that personally, uh, especially now that this is my third book now. And um, I've realized that, Look, if I if I really believe that uh, the true art is becoming fully myself, expressing myself as myself, not just in a room by myself, but in a room of others, uh, that an offering is not an offering unless there's someone there to receive it. Mm-hmm. And so f- for me, it has been uh, a practice of believing that I am called to do this, but not for the benefit of myself, although that is a definitely it benefits me because I feel like I'm able to express myself. But it's but but the art that I believe that has been put within me has been put there not just for me, but for me to express the glory of God for the benefit of others. And so if I were to keep it to myself, um, that that would almost be keeping something that could be a daily grace meant for someone else. And so it's true I may not be the first person to say these things. But my saying it may be the first time someone finally hears these things. And so for me to keep that to myself and say, oh, I have nothing new to offer, or, oh, I don't want to talk about me and my big self, which I often feel, <laughs> or, oh, nobody wants to, blah, blah, blah. It, almost that becomes more self-centered than the actual gracious, generous offering. Look, this is what I've made. This is who I am and what I have to offer Take, take it or leave it, but I, I'm not going to be responsible for holding it inside and keeping from you what may be a gift meant for you from the hand of God. Wow. That, that also reminds me of 
again, every time you say something, it reminds me about 15 other things from the book. <laughs> it's one of those things where I'm reading through it, honestly, and I, I, I look at my wife and I go, you need to read this. And she's, oh, I hope she does. I hope she does. Well, she has no choice now because she. Right. I have a stack of 15 books on my side of the bed that she says you have to read this. And it actually becomes a reading assignment in our house. Um, so I get to give her assignments very rarely, and this is going to be one. Um, but part of it is she was a musical theater major in college and then went into finance because, you know, all those work together, piano, exactly. sign language, that kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. <laughs> and then she taught dance for a little bit on the side. Uh, and now she's studying medicine, but that is her passion, and that's the thing that she's drawn toward. Um, and so wanting to encourage her to find the art in that, which she absolutely does. At the same time, one of the things in the book that really struck me was that that balance. Uh, you were describing Peter and Jesus washing Peter's feet mm-hmm. and First hesitating, I don't know that you should be doing this. Of course, I paraphrase. And then once he kind of got the idea, no, this is what you're doing. Oh, well, then wash my whole body. Uh, Mm -hmm. Finding that balance between honoring the calling and then trying to pick it up and run with it on her own. Boy, that's tough. And And my wife really struggles with that. Are you struggling with that still? I struggle with it every single day, sometimes every minute. Um, and that example of Peter, you would think that when Jesus is washing his feet and then Peter says, well, wash my whole body, you would think, oh, yes, I want to be like Peter and so all in and so committed. And I love how Jesus says only the feet are necessary. It's almost like Peter is trying to jump ahead of the Lord and say, but I know what's best because surely, surely my perspective of this, of what is doing a big thing for you, Jesus, is the best. Um, and I think I love how Jesus brings it back to to a small thing. No, just the feet, just the feet right now. And and really, when you when you go back, I mean, I, I talk a lot about um, sometimes people are like, yes, I want to I want to uncover the art I was made to live and, and and the art I was born to make. But and they go back and I encourage people to look back at your childhood and what were the things that made you come alive then? And, and what are the things you most deeply desire for me when I've recognized my deepest desires? Sometimes the most natural thing to do is to run from them, like, for example, majoring in sign language or majoring in piano when really I have the heart of a writer. Um, But then when you have your hands filled with desire and with childhood dreams, the tendency is to be like Peter and, yes, I'm going to go and I'm going to change the world and I'm going to do this big thing. And and sometimes we even, you know, use that Christian cliche, I'm going to do big things for God. And I don't know that God really asks us to do big things for him. I, I, I think he asks us to belong to him. He asks us to remain in his presence. And so the only safe place to go when we have our hands filled with desire and dreams is really to sink hard into the hands of God. When the sunlight's missing your face You're not sure how long these winds will be with you now. As you get into the, the latter third of the book, uh, you talk about how important it is as an artist to show up. <laughs> and um, boy, there and there's some great stuff there. You list out eight items that uh, prevent you from showing up. And I'm just going to touch on a couple of those. Two that really struck me, uh, one that personally resonates with me is the second one, which is Someone else can do it better um, because, the, boy, that gets me every time. Um, you talk about seeing Sarah Mason, how talented she was. My natural response to that is, well, forget it. Look at that. Right. Forget about it. Right. Yeah. 
So why, you know, tell me why we should press on when we see, when we're faced with people who appear to be more talented than we are. You know, the best thing to do when you and we all hear it, whether whether it's in our art or writing or singing or just in our parenting or whatever, is someone else can do this better. And the best thing to do is to agree. Yep, you're absolutely right. Someone else can do this better. And they probably already have. And you can probably name who they are. Um, and in some ways that can seem defeating, like, well, thanks a lot. But I think it's, it's a false hope to say, no, you're going to be the best. Um, because the best is not our goal, but authenticity is our goal. And being fully ourselves is the goal. And so, yes, someone else can do it better, but that doesn't mean you can't do it too. And I, and I think, too, that um, it, it's similar to what we said a few minutes ago, is that um, just because someone else may be, do it better or say it better or has already said it uh, doesn't mean that we can't also say it and, and doesn't mean that, that our saying it for the millionth time, that might be the first time someone finally hears or recognizes or learns um, because Christ has united himself with, with me and he's going to come out of my unique personality in a way that he will not come out of you uh, because you're not me. And so better, when you think of it that way, the scale of someone doing it better or worse almost almost falls away because it's, it's not really, a, that's sort of a perceived and imagined place. Um, but the reality is Christ is in me and he wants to come out in a million little ways. Whatever that looks like for you is going to look different for me. Um, so it sort of it changes the game a little. Um, but I think that, that, that the whole idea of, of uh, someone saying it better is, is recognizing that, yes, every, all of the ideas are recycled. <laughs> Everybody, everything's already been said. Um, but we can, we can say it anyway. There's nothing new to say, but we can say it and reimagine it differently in our own way. Well, that inner critic comes uh, jumps out at us at that point you know the when you say that somebody else can do it better you're you're subjective you're subjecting yourself to um, a criticism that may or may not be accurate and it's about comparison which I don't think is the healthiest way for artists to think about each other because that implies a um, a judgment I suppose right I read an interview or it wasn't an interview it was a talk that that John Mayer gave to students at Berkeley uh, and he said, he said, never look at other people's music as the enemy of your music. And never never see someone who's made it and think, oh, they shouldn't have made it. Um, that is toxic thinking. And this is John Mayer saying this. I mean, he's not, you know, trying to give a Bible lesson. He's just saying <laughs> a truth. Yeah. Um, and I think that oftentimes uh, the, the harshest critics in my head are not the people who are telling me that my art is bad or that my writing or giving me bad reviews. Those are hard. On the one hand, but sometimes the, the most difficult criticism to take is the kind that comes in my head as a result of seeing other artists create beautiful work by my side. And I see them and they're all their, the ways that they're showing up and they have these beautiful offerings and they're doing things that I wish I could do and saying things in ways I wish I could say them. And I, and I, it's almost like every success they have jumps on my rib cage and, and it makes it harder for me to breathe. Yeah. And I recognize that, that this is my, the hardest place for me to create beautifully is when I'm looking around at all the ways everyone else seems to be doing it better. And it's, it's really no way to live. And it's, it's a, a paralyzing place and, and nothing can come out of that. That's going to be lovely or beautiful or inspiring. Oh yeah. I, I agree with you a hundred percent on that. One of the things I see that comes out of those comparisons is you, if you, if you're fixating on other artists and what they're creating is you can do a couple of things. One, you can give up, the other is that um, you can show up in a different way, which is just fearing that you have nothing unique to share, and so you just create 
copies of other people. They'll write something and it sounds like 20 other songs right out of the gate that somebody else wrote. And you know who's inspiring them, but it's restricting them in some ways. Well, c- copying and and is a really interesting thing because copying is how we learn. Yeah. Um, if you think about in, in the Bible, Jesus says, um, this is how you should pray, our Father who art in heaven. He, he gives us a prayer and he says, copy me. Um, and so as children, it is a really... Uh, it is a really natural way for us to learn is to copy, but then we learn that and we get that down, and then and then we are to move beyond that into a place where we are using that as a foundation, but then we can use that as a, as a firm and solid foundation and sort of bounce off from there and, and, and discover ways of expressing it in our own way. And that's, I mean, I think that's the challenge and that's sometimes the fear is that I'm not going to be able to express it in my own way. I will lift my eyes from this fragile life for you will rescue me you are my prince of peace and i lift up my soul to you who makes things whole oh mercy love of old and you i place my hope i place my hope Well, let me go to uh, the, the number two uh, that I had here, which is actually number eight in your list, in the list of things that prevent us from showing up. And this is probably the one that's most powerful to me. Um, who do you think you are? That one um, is striking because I think that ties into the whole critic and, the for me, the idealist. Can you, uh, can you tell me a little bit about what you're getting at with uh, just that question? I hear this question a lot, but I have to be honest, I don't hear it as often as I used to. And I think it's because I finally called it out. Um, when we are creating work that matters to us, when we are on the verge of risk or discovery, I, I, I believe that every artist, again, using that word, moving towards what makes you come alive, every artist will hear that, that phrase in their minds, who do you think you are? You're no expert. What are, you, what, what are you trying to do here? And I think it's really key for the artist to pay attention to what are you doing when you hear that voice, who do you think you are? Chances are you're not just sitting around, twiddling your thumbs, watching TV, because doing those things don't require any risk. But if you are standing up in front of a classroom, or if you are writing the first chapter of a book, or if you are giving a radio interview and you hear that in your head, who do you think you are? Um, it's really important. Pay attention to what you're doing when you, when you hear that voice because that could be a hint to what it is that makes you come fully alive. That could be a hint to where you might be moving towards a sphere of influence that you that you might not have had before or someplace where your voice is going to be really powerfully heard. And so one way to combat that is to pay attention to what you're doing when you hear that voice. And the second the second way for me as a believer is to answer the question. Who do I think I am? I am made in the image of God, and I've been given a job to do. And I'm not, I'm not a loser with nothing to say, although sometimes I feel like one. Yeah. But if I have been made in his image, I mean, the first thing we know about God is that he created. And the first thing we know about us is we were made in his image. So don't you think that that, that must say something important about me as a person, as a human being made in his image, that I'm made to create. And so whatever that might look like, uh, I, I believe that that is that's really key is is answering the question who do you think you are there's a you spend a lot of time in the book actually encouraging artists to to spend time on self-reflection don't don't walk away from the heartbreak the things that are hurting you 
but uh, take those as opportunities to embrace who you are and understand more about who you are. Absolutely. Yeah. I think we, I think we uh, run, or I, I should speak for myself, I run a lot from things that um, touch me deeply and things that scare me, things that I don't understand. I, um, I traveled to the Philippines with Compassion International a couple of years ago, and I was traveling there. They were taking me on this trip to write. I mean, because they wanted me to see what they saw, to see the work of compassion in this in this poor country with these children who were, I can't even describe the poverty that we saw. Um, and I was terrified to go, partly because I hate flying on airplanes, let's just be honest, but also partly because I was terrified of what I was going to see because I made a commitment to myself, I'm not going to close my eyes, not just my physical eyes, but the eyes of my soul. I'm going to allow this to come in and then I'm going to write what I see. Um, and when I got there, there was a, there was a tendency to feel very small. Like there's nothing I can do. I can't, I can't, uh, heal these children. I can't doctor all their needs that they have. I can't provide for them clothing that they need and a roof over their head and all, I mean, you just see the need and it can be overwhelming, but there was one thing I could do. And I, the one thing I could do was I could, I could keep my eyes open and I could write what I saw. And I believe that um, Henry Nouwen said, I think it was Henry Nouwen who said that um, in the face of poverty, it's more important than ever to to stay true to our vocation um, because it's it's and not let that sadness um, pull us down and out and and depress us so much that we feel uh, incapable to move. Because I believe that we each have our little way of the million little ways that we can influence the world. And so for me that week, I wasn't a doctor, I wasn't a healer, I wasn't a miracle worker, but I was a writer, and I could write what I saw and I could share it with the world in hopes that people would read and would sponsor kids and that the people who were equipped to provide food or medical care could have the money to do that. Always be with the Lord, therefore comfort one another with these words. We shall you go to something that I tweeted about this morning. So if anybody's following this, you'll understand. So you, I pulled a quote from the book and this relates to actually one of your eight items. And that is, Oh, to write about tomato soup. <laughs> so I'm sorry for bringing that one out, but it, it made me laugh. And tell me what, what that quote's about. Sometimes when I, so I write on a blog, right? And I don't write every day, but I write several times a week. And and sometimes the process of writing, and, and sometimes I write about silly stuff, whatever, but but what makes me mo- come most alive is creating space for people's soul to breathe. And so my blog is called Chatting at the Sky, create, you know, a place where your soul can breathe, um, because I really believe that's important. And But let me tell you what, people don't go online for their soul to breathe. <laughs> people go online for recipes, for efficiency. They're quick, quick, quick. They've got their hand over the, you know, they're going to click away at any moment. And so it's a fight for me to to stay in this place where I believe I'm called and to write honestly and vulnerably and deeply often. Um, and sometimes I look at it all and I think, 
What's it all for? This is too hard. I hate my calling. I just want to write about tomato soup. I'll go over to like I'll, I'll go over to food blogs and I'll like get tears in my eyes because of how beautiful their pictures are and how how um oh I, I just want to stay home and, and make spaghetti for my kids. I don't want to go on this trip and talk about my book and you know it, it can be a scary place because it's like well maybe I just maybe I just need to need to give it all, throw it all, all away. All this that I've you know, been doing, maybe, what's it all for? And there can be a great, um, a fear of wasting my time. There's a fear of being too vulnerable. There's a fear of talking about me and my big self all the time, you know? And so that whole, like, I wish I could just write about tomato soup, um, is, is a sense of, I want to do anything, but what I'm called to do sometimes. But here's the interesting thing is I have friends who, who are, um, who cook and who do that as their art. And they say the same thing about other professions. Like they'll say, oh, I, oh, I just wish I could, you know, teach. If I could only teach, why do I have to do this cooking thing? I mean, it's really an interesting dynamic is when we move towards what makes us come alive, it's not just, it's not just um, rainbows and sunshine and unicorns that we're going to find <laughs> and it's going to be there. There's also a lot of struggle, a lot of death that has to happen, I think, on the soul level of, of letting go and, and um, allowing myself to be myself whether that is, it's both, both the shadows and the light. If you think about paintings that you see, it's not just light that you see. It's also shadows and darkness, but that's what gives it the beauty. And it's a whole picture, not, not just a part. And so I, sometimes I feel like I have to dwell in the shadows in order to shine, shine the light. And I, that, that can be a hard place. And to me, tomato soup doesn't feel like it has a lot of shadows in it. But I don't, I don't know if that's actually true if, if, if you were to talk to a food blogger. <laughs> no, well, it's all perspective, right? Yeah. <laughs> some perspective of uh, other artists that uh, you're really into right now whether it's music or um, movies that you're enjoying um, what's what's really calling out to you in terms of art that you're consuming um, that's a great question so every morning before I start my work or as I'm starting my work I turn on um, Ellie Holcomb's new album um, what's it called with you now something about the way her voice, it's her voice and it's her lyrics and it's the way it all goes together. It's just so beautiful. And she just, it just brings me back to my center and recognizing, okay, I'm not alone. Christ is with me in this. And it just somehow, it's almost like, you know, how Pavlov's dogs with the bells, it like gets me in the, it gets me going. And that's how right now, that's how that album is for me. It's sort of my, my daily liturgy of, of, okay, now it's time to begin. Now we're going into it. Who else? I'm trying to think. Krista Wells is always a favorite. I think her lyrics are poetic, and her voice is too. So I I try to listen to her as often as possible. Her her latest album. Obviously, we just got done interviewing her a few episodes ago. Just a striking album. The imagery. You're right. Her lyrics are just outstanding, and she's somebody who's not afraid to embrace darkness, which is, I think, unique among many Christian artists. I love Krista's perspective on being an artist. I think she has a really full picture of, you know, not art, not all artists have the same goal, even though the outside world might, you know, think, so when's your, I hope you have your next big break, or I hope you make it big. And it's like, well, 
you know, making it big is very relative. Yeah. <laughs> and so I love her thoughts on that are really um, profound and also encouraging to me. Trust me, we can catch some light if we keep our eyes open till it comes. Have your eyes open, have your eyes open, have your eyes open when it comes. Well, thank you. I do. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. And I really, you know, honestly, really appreciate the book. Uh, it's something that um, I want to I make sure that, you know, th- those five people that really like our show <laughs> get, a, get a hold of. I hope it changes their life, man. Those five people. It, well, it has because um, you know me, my wife, Dan, <laughs> and the and the two dogs. You know we're we're ready to go. That's awesome. I love it. All right, that was our interview with the lovely and talented Emily Freeman. And if I haven't mentioned it already, we highly encourage you to pick up a copy of her book, A Million Little Ways. It really is a must-read for creatives. It's very obvious that Emily has a heart for artists. Hopefully I I didn't come across as too much of a fanboy during the conversation. We also want to thank Ellie Holcomb for allowing us to use songs from her recently released EP, With You Now. You also heard Ellie singing background on Have Your Eyes Open from Krista Wells' album, Feed Your Soul. Ellie will be releasing a full-length album in February 2014 after after, uh, she just completed a ridiculously successful Kickstarter campaign. So, what else is coming up on Frequency? Well, specifically, we've got a written interview with singer-songwriter J.C. Mason, who is uh, pursuing the creation of Steadfast Trails, which is uh, her unique vision for a camp ministry in her home state of Virginia. That should be coming out in just a couple of days, so look out for it. J.C.'s got a great heart. We're pretty excited about what she is trying to accomplish with Steadfast Trails. Also, always, there's more interviews, reviews, and commentary for and about Christian artists that's coming your way. I think next week we're going to be featuring uh, an interview with Tim Timmons. So stick around. Well, uh, that's it for this episode. Uh, Make sure you keep up with us on social media. You'll find us on Twitter. Our handle is at FrequencyFM. On Facebook, you'll find us at Facebook.com slash FrequencyFM on Pinterest at Pinterest.com slash Frequency FM. And on Google Plus, just search for Frequency FM and our logo will pop right up. So I'm Joe Brookhouse signing off and we'll see you next time on the Frequency Podcast. Until then, don't stop creating in his name. count to three and then whenever you want to go okay one two three (laughs) sorry (laughs) you're the worst